The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. This morning, um, Jesus is going to give us instruction. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. We're just going to kind of dig right in. So if you would please open to John chapter 14. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 901. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 1325. The Gospel of John is split up into two major parts. There is chapters 1 through 11, which covers the birth of Jesus and the three years of ministry for Jesus. Those are the things that we have covered in this sermon series. And then there is chapters 12 through 20, which is the second half in it. And John spends that whole time focused on the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life and his resurrection. He spends far more time on it than anyone else does. And so we'll cover that portion of Scripture some other time, hopefully in the future, if God uh, guides us there. But what we are doing is we are looking at the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. The I Am statements are unique statements made by Jesus. And it's traced back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 3.14, Moses asks God. He says, God, what is your name? And God responds and says, I am who I am. And so the, the phrase I am is this divine name of God. And Jesus claims this throughout the Gospel of John, but there are seven places in particular that that theologians kind of draw out and call the seven I am statements of John. And so, so far, I usually quiz you on this, but I know it's warm and you're probably not thinking straight, so I'll just give it to you. He says, I am the bread of life, which we covered. We covered, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Today we are going to cover Jesus' I am statement when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? John 14 is the start of Jesus' farewell address. He knows he is headed towards the cross and he starts to talk to his disciples and comfort his disciples. And that's where we pick up the passage. In John 14... Verses 1 through 6. Read along with me if you would. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit under your word this morning, God, I pray that it would offend us and correct us where we need to be corrected, God. If there are strongholds in our life and in our heart that need to be, that need to be diminished, that, that you need to conquer, I pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. Pray that as a result of our, of our listening to the scripture and, and expounding on the scripture, that our affection would grow for you. 
and that we would see the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we would understand what Jesus means when he says, let not your heart be troubled. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you knew that you had about 24 hours to live, what would you do? I'm sure I'd panic. (laughs) There'd probably be some crying, some phone calls, some Skyping, probably stay at home with my family. This is Jesus's situation. He has about 24 hours left to live. He knows it and he is giving this farewell address. And even though all of these things are looming over him, he has the love and the compassion to say to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. This tells us a lot about the Savior. It tells us of how he cares for his sheep, how he shepherds his sheep. And even though he is headed towards the most miserable event in human history, he has a mind towards those whom he loves. What does Jesus mean when he says, let not your heart be troubled? Well, let me start with what I don't think it means. I don't think Jesus is saying, do not grieve, because we're commanded elsewhere in Scripture to grieve. I don't think he's saying, do not cry, do not mourn, because we see just a few chapters earlier when when Lazarus dies, Jesus weeps and he grieves over the death of Lazarus. And so what does Jesus mean when he says, let not your hearts be troubled? Well, what I think it means if you want to take the consistency of scripture, is that Jesus is saying, let not your hearts be troubled to the point of despair. Your heart should not be troubled to the point where you are helpless, where you are hopeless, where you are crushed by your situation. And so let me ask the question, what troubles your heart this morning? What heavy burdens do you bring into church? If anyone had reason to be troubled, it was the disciples. Just prior to this passage, Jesus gave his disciples some very troubling news. He told them that he was going to be leaving, that he was going to be going to a place that they could not come. You can imagine how confusing this would be, how, how they might have felt abandoned. They had left everything to follow Jesus for three years, and now Jesus is saying, I'm going someplace, and you cannot go with me. And then he turns to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. What is troubling your heart? Maybe it is a marriage that is falling apart. Maybe it is your singleness. Maybe what is troubling your heart is your job situation or your financial situation. Maybe it is a fractured family, rebellious children, broken friendships. What troubles your heart? What keeps you awake at night? What makes you frustrated? Jesus says to us in the chaos, in the confusion, in the pain, the same thing that he said 2,000 years ago, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is not minimizing the troubles in your life. He's not minimizing the hardship in your life. He's not saying, don't worry, be happy. He's not saying, it will be okay. But what Jesus is getting ready to do is to share a hope that is more hopeful than your troubles are troubling. Even though there are reasons to be troubled, there are even greater reasons for the Christian to not be troubled. And that's what we're going to look at today. So 
why do we not need to let our hearts be troubled? There are three things we're going to look at. Because Jesus is the way, because Jesus is the truth, and because Jesus is the life. So let's start with the first one. The first reason why our hearts need not be troubled to the point of despair, to the point of hopelessness, is because Jesus is the way. The statement that Jesus makes, I am the way, is a reminder that we are on a spiritual journey. And as with every journey, there is an origin, there is a destination, and then there is a way, a path between the beginning and the end. You know, if you go on Google Maps, you type in the beginning, the starting point, the ending point, you hit go, and then it gives you the way to get there. It gives you the path. And so I want to look at those three things. What are the origins of our spiritual condition, our starting point in the spiritual journey? What is the destination and what is the way? Okay, and we're going to spend most of the time on this main point that Jesus is the way. So first, what is the origin? What is the starting point of our spiritual journey? Well, Jesus describes in other places throughout scripture, like Luke 19.10, he describes our spiritual condition this way. He says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. One way Christ descri- excuse me, describes our condition from birth is that we are lost. We have ran away from God. As we sang in this song, we have ran our hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, and we have run so far from God that we can never get back to him. That even if we knew somehow how to get there, we wouldn't have the power to do it. And so the origin is spiritual lostness. And then he goes into the destination. Where is the end goal of our spiritual journey? Verse 2, read along with me if you would. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms talking about heaven. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You know, it's so interesting that Jesus follows this statement, let not your hearts be troubled, with this promise. That heaven is coming. And so the way that he is trying to de-trouble his disciples is by proclaiming a truth that heaven is coming. It is to encourage them to lift their hearts out of the current situation that is temporary and focus them on the eternal hope of heaven. Jesus continues by telling them what is so great about heaven in verse 3. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you. And it's interesting. He doesn't say I will take you to heaven. He says, I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. Many people, when they think about heaven, we ask questions like, will my family be there? Will my friends be there? Will my unborn children be there? And those are good questions to ask. And in the Lord, they will be there. We read in the Old Testament about how people die and they're gathered to their people. And so we will see those people in heaven that trust in the Lord, that are saved by the Lord. But what makes heaven so great is not our grandpa and our grandma or our moms and dads. What makes heaven so great is Jesus is there. He brings us to himself. And so heaven is not so much about a place as it is about being reunited fully and completely without sin to a person, to Jesus. One of my great privileges as a pastor is to visit families that just had a baby. And so I got to visit the Wagnets 
on Wednesday. And um, it's always fun hearing, you know, the story of how did it go, you know, things like that. And so Julie was sharing with me that she was in labor for four days. By the way, she gave me permission to share this. So, um, but she was in labor for four days. And so they delivered Grady on Tuesday and she probably could have delivered him on Saturday. Um, you know, she wasn't quite sure if she could go in or not. They kind of put pressure on you, you know, don't come in unless you're sure. And so she wasn't sure. And so she stayed home. And so for four days, she was laboring in pain and suffering, could hardly eat, could hardly sleep. And Tim being the great comforter that he said, what he said, you know, you really shouldn't have eaten that forbidden fruit, you know, Pain and childbearing, that's a fact of the fall. You shouldn't do that. And she said, I don't even like apples. It's not my fault. But she was in pain for four days. And so when I was in the hospital after talking about this, I asked Julie, I said, was it worth it? Was it worth those four days? And she said, absolutely. And Tim said, I want 10 more kids. (laughs) Why was it worth it? Why was it worth it to go through all the pain, not only of those four days, but through all of the pregnancy pains of of morning sickness, of discomfort? Why was it worth it? Because at the end, the destination was a person. At the end was Grady Wayne Wagnus. And that's why going through that suffering, through that labor was worth it. Because at the end was someone glorious that they got to enjoy What troubles your heart today? What leads you to despair? Whatever that trouble is, no matter how difficult it is and how horrible and how sad it is, it is only momentary. It is only the labor of childbirth. There is an eternity that sits before us. And so we need to put on the the, the spectacles of God and look past, not ignore, but look past our current situation that gives us hardship and look to the glory of heaven that will last forever. We must keep our temporary troubles in perspective with the internal inheritance we have of being with Jesus. So on this spiritual journey, our origin is that we are lost spiritually, that we are destined for heaven if we are in Christ to have communion with God. But what is the path there? How do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from lostness and separation from God to a relationship with God, to be in communion with God? What is the way? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 4, Jesus says, And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the way to heaven is not a path to be hiked, to be walked, to be scaled. The way to heaven is a person to be found, to be trusted in to be depended on, to be found in. Let me give it to you this way. If, if I invited you over to my house for lunch after church, I would probably give you precise directions. I would say, go out the parking lot, take a left, take a right on Velp, go north on 41, south on 43, exit Mason, take a right, take a right on Alpine, left on Finger, right on Menlo Park. We'll all see you there after the service, okay? 
I would give you precise directions. This is what you do to get from point A from here to my house, which is point B. This is the directions that Thomas is looking for. Jesus, tell me what I got to do. How many times do I have to go to church? How many old ladies do I have to walk across the street? Like what sins are okay for me to do? What's not okay for me to do? How do I get from here to heaven? And Jesus says, you're missing it. That is not the path to heaven. The path to heaven is not what you do. The path to heaven is found in me, Jesus says. And so it'd be more like this. If I invited you over to my house for lunch and we were going to give you a ride and you say, how do I get to your house? I would point to our big red suburban, Clifford, the big red car, we call it. And I would say, get in there. That's how you get to my house. Get in that car. Jesus is saying, do you want to know the way to heaven? I'm not going to give you turn-by-turn directions. It can only be found in me. You must be found in me. You must trust me. You must believe in me. You must dwell in me. And that is how you get to the Father's house. You might be here today. You might feel extremely lost. Feel like God is completely absent from your life. That you have no relationship with God. That God just seems like this distant entity that that you just can't know personally. And yet Jesus tells us here that we can have a relationship with God. That he is the way to that relationship with God. That we cannot get it through our moral excellence, through our academic achievements, through through our excellence in the workplace. That the only way that we can get to God, the only way that we can that we can come into relationship with God now and for all eternity is to be found in Christ. And so why do we need not our hearts be troubled? Because God has provided a way back to him. God has provided his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the way. Secondly, we see Jesus is the truth. Look in verse one with me. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I think it's okay, maybe I'm wrong, but I think in between those two statements, we could probably put a rather in there. I think he's comparing the two. He's saying, let not your hearts be troubled, rather believe in God, believe also in me. And so Jesus is giving this solution. If your heart is troubled to the point of despair, whatever it might be, the solution is to believe in God, and in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what exactly are we to believe about them? Well, he continues, verse 2. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And then you can hear him straining to convince them to believe the truth, which is our, our daily battle, isn't it? To believe the truth is true for me. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus says, I am telling you the truth. Why would I lie to you? I know it is hard to believe, but you can endure the sufferings of this world because I am going to prepare an eternity for you in heaven. Jesus' truth claims continue and they get a little more invasive. Verse 6, Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, singular. I am the truth, singular. I am the life, singular. Jesus does not say, I am a way, 
I am a truth and I am a life. He says, no, no, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the truth of God put in bodily form to carry God's mission of redemption. In case you missed how offensive this statement is, how exclusive it is, Jesus goes on. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and then adds to it just to make sure there is no confusion. He says, no one, let that sink in. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6, Jesus' words just might be the most offensive words ever spoken in human history. They are narrow-minded, right? They are exclusive. They could seem arrogant, although they're not. Jesus is saying, there is no other way to get to God. None. No matter how good your intentions are, there's no way to get to God except through me. Everything else is error. Everything else is ignorant. I am the truth. All other ways are counterfeit. All other ways are false. All other ways are untrue and they lead to hell. But I lead to the Father's house. We see this throughout scripture, the exclusiveness of Christ. In Acts 4, 12, it says, and there is salvation in no one else, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not the Pope, not Dan Jackson, and no one else. For there is no other name than the name of Jesus under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. First Timothy 2, 5, just another. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Again and again, the scripture says there is only one way. All other way is idolatry. This claim is probably more offensive today than it has ever been in human history. It truly is narrow-minded. It truly is exclusive. It truly is intolerant. And all of those are nasty words in a postmodern world, right? We live in a postmodern world where we say, you know what, whatever is good for you, good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me, but don't question it. You know, you want to worship Jesus? Great. Just don't tread on me. Don't tell me that I can't worship this other God or worship surfing or worship nature or whatever it might be. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. This is what the postmodern culture says. And yet Jesus says to that, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let me go back to my illustration about inviting you over to my house for lunch. Let's say um, I, I invite you over and I just give you my address, right? Let's say I invite everyone over. This is not actually happening, so please don't show up at my house. My wife will be freaked out. It's not clean. There's no food. Anyways, oh, you can come if you want to clean and bring us food. That would be fine. But let's say I just, here's my address, right? And you type it into your GPS or you pull up a map, right? There are an infinite number of ways to get to my house. You could take the highway. You could go through town. As you go to the highway or go through town, you could take a a number of different turns. I mean, there are literally probably a hundred different ways that you could get to my house, right? And and the postmodern culture would say, see, this is what it's like with God. You know, we're all headed to the same God, but we all just might take different routes to get there. But we can all get there our own way. But there's one major problem. What if, what, well, what if my house was an international space station? 
What if that's where we live? That would be, we'd be like the Jetsons. That would be awesome. What if, what if my house was there and I said, listen, there's only one way you can get there. You have to take a rocket. You have to fly. Logic would go, someone would say, that's really intolerant. That's very exclusive. I would rather drive my car. I would really like to walk. Maybe I could paddle a canoe to the International Space Station. I'd say, no, you have to take a rocket. You go, well, that's just, that's just intolerant. Okay, but it's true. What Jesus says is absolutely intolerant. It's absolutely narrow-minded, but it's true. All other ways of trying to get to the Father's house is spinning your wheels. The Father's house that Jesus is preparing for us is not on this current earth. You cannot drive there. You cannot fly there. You cannot walk there. The only way you can get to the Father's house is through Jesus Christ. He is the true way to the Father. So why don't we need to let our hearts be troubled? Because Jesus is the way to God. Because he is the true way to God. And finally, Jesus is the life. Before Jesus saves us, we are not only spiritually lost, and he shows us the way. We're not only spiritually ignorant, and he gives us the truth. But the Bible says we're spiritually dead, and he gives us the life. You may remember earlier from the series when when Lazarus was dead and Jesus shows up on the scene and he says to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then he backs up the claim by going and raising Lazarus from the dead in front of a tremendous audience of skeptics. Jesus says, I give life. Now, how do we get that life? How do we get the life that he promises. You know, there's something very, very interesting in this passage. We've been hammering home this instruction of Jesus where he says, let not your hearts be troubled, right? Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. But if you go into the last chapter, if you back up about 18 verses in John 13, 21, it says this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. <laughs> So he keeps saying, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Just verses earlier, Jesus' heart was troubled. I, I mean, this is interesting for me because I can't recall. Maybe there's other things in Scripture that I don't know about. But I don't recall other times where Jesus says, don't do this, and then Jesus does it, right? Jesus is the sinless son of God. And yet in this situation, he says, let not your heart be troubled. But over here, his heart is troubled. And so how could Jesus do that? Is he just a hypocrite? How could he say, let not your heart be troubled? And yet his heart is troubled. Well, we actually look back in John 12 and it kind of opens it up for us. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, which means taking the cross. When Jesus's heart is troubled, it is because he has in mind the cross. When his heart is troubled, it's because he knows that he will bear the wrath of God for you and for me and for all who trust in Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, 
I pray that your heart is troubled. Troubled because you will endure the wrath of God. But if you are here today and you trust in Jesus Christ, your heart need not be troubled to the point of despair. You need not grieve as one who has no hope because Jesus was despaired for you. He took on your trouble at the cross that you could have eternity on heaven. He bore the brunt of your punishment. He was troubled because he was facing the wrath of God. But you not need be troubled because you will not face the wrath of God if you trust in him. Across the street from our house, there's an ice rink. And I like to take my kids over and try to teach them how to skate. And usually we have one half of the ice and we're, you know, I'm holding them up and all that. And on the other side, there will be usually some teenage guys out there playing hockey, doing, doing whatever and what's interesting, we watched them shooting, and, and one time we were out there, and this guy was just rifling slap shots at the goalie, one after another, one after another, one after another. And the goalie had on his goalie pants, his, his, his uh, padded chest protector, whatever you call it, his gloves, but he didn't have a helmet on. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's not comfortable. Maybe it's not cool, like riding a motorcycle. I don't know. But he didn't have a helmet on. But they're out there, and he's taking slap shots, and he's grabbing the puck left and right. Well, we go home, think nothing of it. We come back a few days later, and no joke, it looks like a deer died on the ice. There was blood all over by the goal. And then it trickled off to the exit. And so I wasn't there. I don't know for sure, but I can guess what happened. He missed the slap shot, right? <laughs> and, and it slapped him right in the face. You see, the purpose of a helmet is to absorb the shock. The purpose of the helmet is to absorb the pain. It's to absorb the blast so that you need not be troubled fear, fearing that that puck is going to hit you. But the thing is, you have to take that helmet and you have to put it on. And until you put it on, you will fear the puck. Jesus Christ says, you need to put me on. You need to be found in me. Until you are found in me, your heart should be troubled. But if you are found in me, if you are found in Christ, if you have trusted in him, you have no fear of hell. You have no fear of the punishment of God or the wrath of God because Christ bore that pain for you. He absorbed that pain on your behalf. So why don't we need to let our hearts be troubled? Why need not our hearts be troubled to the point of despair in this life? Because while we were lost in our sin, God showed us the way through Jesus Christ. God was the way, Jesus Christ. Because when we were ignorant in our sin, Jesus was the truth of God. And when we were dead in our sin, Jesus was the life of God. <clears throat> Let me end with this story. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was the youngest of five kids. And my wife's family, I'm sorry, my, my dad's family, um, was from Ohio, from a small town called Wellington, Ohio, just outside Cleveland, Ohio. And every summer we would take this long journey, this 12-hour journey, to get to my grandparents' house. And that journey had many troubles in it, many difficulties, especially for the youngest of five kids. I mean, who do you think got the middle seat on the way there? That's right, Danny did. Little Danny got the middle seat. When we stayed in hotels and there's seven of us crammed into a hotel room, who do you think slept in the bathtub? Little Danny did. Who slept in the chair? Little Danny. Who slept in the drawer? Little Danny. 
They never closed it that I can remember. But little Danny, that's little Danny got the smallest ice cream cone because he was the littlest, right? So there was many troubles to get there, but it was worth it. It was worth enduring the troubles because I knew my destination. I knew I was headed to grandma and grandpa's house in Wellington, Ohio. And what was so grand about going to that place was not that they had a big yard, which they did. It wasn't that they had a whole bunch of toys in the basement, which they did. It wasn't the amazing chocolate chip cookies, which they had. What made grandma and grandpa's house so glorious? What made it worth suffering through the troubles of a 12-hour car ride there was that grandma and grandpa were there. Grandma and grandpa are gone now. I have no desire to go back to their house because what made it special, what made it wonderful was their presence. Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus in this passage is telling us that our hearts need not be troubled because we know our destination. Because we right now are in a light and momentary affliction, but we are bound for an eternal weight of glory in the Father's house. I want to end with a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think this summarizes well what Christ is communicating to us in John 14. Paul says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction. Paul's talking about the troubles in this life, and he's describing them as light and momentary. This is the man who had the flesh ripped off his back several times for trusting in Christ. And he's calling it a light, momentary affliction. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light, momentary affliction isn't even worth comparing to the glory that we will have for all eternity. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning they're fleeting, they're temporary, they're a vapor. But the things that are unseen, the eternal weight of glory, are eternal. Let's pray. Lord God, we know we will face troubles in this lifetime. Matter of fact, you promise in your word that we will face troubles. And yet all of us who are in Christ, all of us who've trusted in Christ, our hearts need not be troubled. Because this life is a light, momentary affliction compared to to the weight of glory you have in store for us. Help us, Lord Jesus. It is a battle daily to remember that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life. Help us to rest in you. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that does not trust in you as their Savior God, I pray that their heart would be deeply troubled, deeply troubled by their sin, deeply troubled by the penalty their sin deserves, but that they would find the glorious truth of the gospel, that you have absorbed that penalty for us at the cross. Lead us this week, God, to rejoice that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.